I failed to mention this before, but I think most of you know who I am. I'm Pastor Scott. I'm pastor of Karen Seniors here at First Alliance Church, and I'm so glad that you're here with us today. And if you couldn't be with us, but you're watching online, we're so glad that you're watching with us. Today we're going to be in Luke chapter 15, so I want you to take your Bibles or your devices and turn there. If you came without either of those, there is a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. We're in Luke chapter 15, that's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Did you know that we have a lost and found bin here at FAC? I was going to have it up here on the platform with me, and I was going to go through some of the items. Some of them are kind of, I think, funny that are in there. So on Tuesday, I went down to see what was in there, and it was empty. You see, every so often, we take what hasn't been uh, picked up in the last few months, and we donate it to the city mission, and they chose this week of all weeks that I was going to use it as a sermon illustration to donate those items. (laughs) The nerve. So instead, I went online to find an opening illustration. So these are some things that were left behind in Uber vehicles. A bulletproof vest. I'm just wondering, if you needed a bulletproof vest that bad, how could you forget it and leave it in the Uber? Here's another one, an ankle monitor. You know the ones that they put on people on house arrest? Somebody happened to get this off and left it behind. Now, my guess is the guy that left behind his bulletproof vest was chasing the other Uber. (laughs) Wouldn't that make a great scene in a Mission Impossible movie? Forever known as the Uber chase scene. Well, here are some more lost and found items. These are at a place called the Unclaimed Baggage Center that's in Scottsboro, Alabama. A camera from a space shuttle was recovered, identified and promptly sent back to NASA. They also discovered the missile guidance system for a fighter jet. Now, I think I would have had some fun with that before I turned it in, but that's just me. And I'll share one item that I have seen in our own lost and found bin for several months before this last Tuesday anyway, and that is a pillow. Now, I want to know why any of you are bringing a pillow to the church services. And if I look out there today and see you laying your head down on a pillow or snuggling up in a blanket, I will call you out. (laughs) Now, you may be wondering why I'm talking about this, or maybe you just think I've lost my mind. And maybe that's something that'll end up in that lost and found bin this week. But this morning, as you may have gathered from our scripture reading, I'm going to be talking to you about things that are lost and found. So let's read that scripture together one more time. This is in Luke chapter 15. Follow along as I read the first seven verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost." Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Let's pray. Father, would you please make this 
uh, passage come alive to us this morning and the things that we need to address in our own lives, would you give us the courage and the strength to do that? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, let me ask you a question. What is your favorite animal? You're acting like this is rhetorical. I'm asking you, what is your favorite animal? I heard a dog and a goat. I, I know who that came from. Well, mine is probably a basset hound. And this is my basset hound. That's not it. There. That's Linus. Isn't he adorable? That's my little guy. Well, let me ask you another question. What do you think is God's favorite animal? A lamb. Oh, that was good. It's like you read the passage ahead of time. (laughs) I think also that his favorite animal is a sheep or a lamb. Have you ever noticed how many times that sheep are mentioned in the Bible? And there are lots of shepherds too, which is part of the problem for me because I don't know a whole lot about sheep or shepherds. I saw them in books when I was a little boy, and I knew this song about a little lamb. Its fleece was white as snow. And they're pretty easy to draw, which is good for somebody like me that has no artistic ability. You just kind of draw a cloud and then put some legs on it. But I grew up in Southern California, and the only time that I saw real sheep was at a petting zoo. So I never got to know much about sheep, which is fine if you were a financial analyst, which I was for many years, but it can be a real disadvantage as a pastor because the Bible talks about sheep and shepherds and lambs a lot. They seem to be one of God's favorite animals and one of his favorite illustrations. For example, ask most people, what is their favorite psalm? And most people will say, Psalm 23, right? Which was written by David who before he was the king of Israel was a shepherd. Would you like to recite that with me? I put it up here on the screen so that we can say it together in the same translation. And I chose the King James just because that's the the version that I memorized it from, okay? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord is my shepherd. That's very personal, isn't it? And it's, it's quite a picture. The prophet Isaiah says, God will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Now, when you think of God, do you see him like that? Protecting, providing, And if he's a shepherd, what does that make you and me? A sheep, right? Can you see yourself as one of God's sheep? Depending on him, belonging to him, following him, being close to him. Now, if we had a Christmas pageant for our kids, we would dress them up in different parts. Now, which one would you want to be? Mary, Joseph, 
Maybe you choose one of the wise men. Well, after my study this week, I think I would choose to be a lamb. Now, why would I choose that? Because I think that God really likes sheep. And I really want to know that God likes me. Sheep are not raised everywhere in the world. I found this out this week. They are really concentrated in certain areas. And believe it or not, the state in our country that has the most sheep is, do you want to take a guess? What do you think? I think I heard somebody say it. It's Texas. Now, I would have guessed cows or maybe oil rigs, but no, it's sheep. But what about in the whole world? Which country do you think has the most sheep in the world? I heard Scotland several times. It's actually China. Yeah. But I find this even more interesting. There are more sheep in New Zealand than people. Matter of fact, there are a lot more. There are 20 sheep for every one person in New Zealand. Can you imagine counting them all? One, two, three... Yeah, some of you got that. Well, there are lambs and sheep and shepherds all over the Bible. Because in Bible lands, all the way from the first uh, beginning chapters of the Bible with Abel as a shepherd, right up to the New Testament times, the people of Israel were shepherds. And although over time they found themselves kind of on the fringes of society because it was difficult for them to uh, get to the temple to worship, They uh, also were not even allowed to be a witness in court because they lived such rough lives out in the field. But Jesus called himself the good shepherd. Jesus knows his sheep so well that he has a name for each one of them, and he calls them by name. They hear his voice, and they respond to him, and we're told that he even laid down his life for the sheep. Now to me, sheep are just sheep. I couldn't tell one from another, let alone name them by name. But that's not true of the good shepherd. He knows the sheep. He names them. He will fight whatever is trying to harm his sheep. And he notices if one is sick or struggling or when one is missing. Another of the most famous passages in the Bible which involves sheep is the one that we just read in Luke 15. Some people were complaining about the company that Jesus was keeping looking down their noses at the dodgy characters who seemed to love Jesus. And they loved him because he genuinely loved them. We're told in 1 John 4.19 that we love him because he first loved us. At that point, Jesus told three stories so his listeners as well as us would know who really mattered to God because you matter to God. And I hope by the end of this morning, you're ready to tell God that you love him because he first loved you. Jesus told three stories about a lost coin, about some lost boys, and of course about a lost sheep. And today I only have time to tell you about the lamb's tail. I'm waiting. Lamb's tail? Okay, forget it. Imagine that lost sheep. Now, how did that happen? The same way it always happens. It happens one step at a time because nobody gets lost all at once. You take a step or two in the wrong direction. You take a turn for the worse. Maybe a child takes their eyes off of their parents. Sometimes you don't even know that you're doing it until you look up and you find that you're lost. When you were a child, maybe you were holding your mom's hand or your dad's hand. 
you're in the mall or at an amusement park, and then you see something interesting, tempting, and you head towards it. You just do your own thing, and then you're lost. Or maybe you're out driving and you think, I I know this way pretty well. I don't think I'm going to turn on my GPS today. And you take a couple of wrong turns and pretty soon it's a pride thing because you're not going to admit it, right? Even if you're alone, you're not going to admit it because that's a sign of weakness. And soon you realize that you're completely lost. So what do we do when we're driving and we're completely lost? Men, what do we do? We drive faster, right? But at some point, you have to admit, even if it is silently in your own mind, I'm lost. An old hymn writer put it this way, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Isaiah 53, 6 says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. When Isaiah says that we're like sheep, it's not a compliment. Sheep are not smart. They go off and they get lost in bad places. And and often that lostness does not just affect them, but it affects the people around them because somebody has to go and find them. Let me tell you a story about the first Basset that we had. This was way back when we were newlyweds. Her name was Maggie. And we also had another dog at the same time, a, a golden retriever named Gretchen. And we had a gate that had a spring on it. And so uh, when you opened it, it would kind of pull itself closed and hopefully latch. Well, sometimes it didn't latch. And the dogs soon learned this, that they could push on it with their paw or with their nose, and they could go out and have an adventure. Well, we'd come home from wherever we'd been, and we would find Gretchen, the retriever, curled up on the front porch just waiting for us to come home and let her inside. Maggie, on the other hand, we learned that Bassets are not among the smartest breeds and they will put their nose down and follow the scent wherever it takes them and then look up and realize, I have no idea where I am or how to get home. I guess I'll just keep going. And so I would have to go out and find Maggie, pick her up and carry her back home. Which, by the way, if you think carrying a sleeping child is heavy, wait till you carry a Basset hound. Well, it's the same for us. When we get lost, it leads to hurt and heartache for everyone involved. Sometimes we even get lost deliberately. We choose to become lost. We turn away from God. We turn our backs on what we know is right. Anyone watching would say, hey, turn around. If you keep going that way, you're going to end up lost. But we think that we're different. We think it's going to turn out differently for us. We all have this natural tendency to go our own way instead of following God's way. But the good news is God wants us back. So he sent Jesus to be our Savior. The Lord comes looking for the lost one. He goes after them. He goes after us. This story shows us the importance of sinning people in the eyes of Jesus, not because they're sinning, that's not why they're important, but because he loves us. And at the same time, this story shows us that lost people should be important to us as well. Let's not forget that every one of us, at some point in our lives, we have been that sinner who has wandered away and become lost. Because no one can claim that they have always been a Christian, a Christ follower. This story's drama is built on the tension of an attempt to find something that has been lost. Now, anyone who has ever lost anything 
or loses something on a regular basis can identify with this tension. Maybe it's your keys. Maybe it's your cell phone. For me, misplacing or losing my cell phone is a real problem because my phone is always on vibrate. The number of times when it would be okay for me to have my uh, my ringer on is so slim, such a small percentage of the time, that it's actually better for me to silence my cell phone, as they say at the movies. But it makes finding a misplaced cell phone nearly impossible. Because what do we do when we've misplaced our cell phone? We tell somebody, hey, call me, right? Somebody that's near us in the house, call my number. Well, that's fine if your ringer's on, but if it's on vibrate and the phone is not near you someplace, you're never going to hear it upstairs or in another room. But when my misplaced phone is found, I really feel a sense of relief. And I believe there is a similar feeling when the lost sheep is found in this story. Well, let me tell you a little bit about the original audience, the people that Jesus told this story to at first. He tells this story and the following stories of a lost coin, a lost son, to tax collectors and sinners. Now, maybe you've read this story enough times that you simply hear those two groups of people mentioned together and you don't give it a whole lot of thought. But really, why are people who are collecting taxes grouped with a bunch of people who are labeled sinners? So what is it about them that makes it a logical decision to equate this profession with them as being sinners? Probably in every culture, in every part of history, from the tax collectors of ancient Israel to the IRS agents of today, the taxman has been... uh, has received more than their fair share of scorn. The New Testament indicates that the occupation of tax collector was looked down upon by the people. The Pharisees, who were the Jewish religious leaders in the Bible, they showed their disdain for the tax collectors in one of their early confrontations with Jesus. It's found in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus was eating a meal, it says, with many tax collectors and sinners, For there were many who followed him. When the Pharisees noticed this, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, see, to a Pharisee, a sinner was a Jew who did not follow every part of the law. But to God, a sinner is anyone, whether Jew or Gentile, who disobeys even one of his laws, even if it's just in their mind and not in action. There are a few reasons for the low view of tax collectors in the New Testament. First, let's be honest, none of us likes to pay taxes, right? Especially when the government is an oppressive regime like the Roman Empire of the first century. Those who collected the taxes for such a government, they would bear the brunt of public scorn. Second, the tax collectors in the Bibles were Jewish people who were working for those hated Romans. These individuals were seen as traitors to their own country. Rather than fighting the Roman oppressors, these tax collectors were actually helping them. Third, it was common knowledge that tax collectors cheated the people who they collected from. By whatever means necessary, they would collect more than the required amount and then keep all of the extra. Fourth, because of their skimming off the top, they became very rich. And this further separated them from the lower classes who resented the injustice 
of their having to support the tax collector's lavish lifestyle. The tax collectors then were ostracized from society, and so they decided to form their own cliques of other tax collectors, which made them even more separate from the rest of society. Given the low esteem that people had for tax collectors, it's noteworthy that Jesus spent so much time with them, and many of them were told believed in him. Jesus responded to the Pharisees' indignation by stating his ministry purpose. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Pharisees saw tax collectors as enemies to be shunned. Jesus saw them as spiritually sick people to be healed. The Pharisees could offer nothing to the tax collectors except a long list of rules. Jesus offered forgiveness of sins in the hope of a new life. No wonder the tax collectors liked Jesus so much and wanted to spend time with him. Now, let me give you a little illustration of taxes. This is in modern times. In the 1980s, an IRS research officer in Washington, D.C. had seen a lot of audits, and he saw that many, many people were putting down these uh, people as dependents that he knew were not real. It was just for the sake of getting another exemption. Now, sometimes he knew that it was probably an honest mistake, like a divorced wife and a divorced husband making duplicate claims on the children as dependents. But sometimes those claims were just downright fraudulent and actually comically fraudulent, like the one time that he saw somebody list a dependent's name as Fluffy. The agent decided that the best way to eliminate this was simply to require taxpayers to list the social security numbers of the taxpayers or their, I mean, their dependents. Well, that idea didn't get approved. But a few years later, with Congress clamoring for more tax revenue, the agent's idea was resurrected and put into tax law for 1986. When the returns started coming in the following April, the IRS was shocked because they saw 7 million dependents suddenly disappear off the rolls. That's a lot of fluffies, isn't it? That clever idea generated nearly $3 billion in tax revenue in one year. Well, let's get back to our story. So Jesus is telling this story to tax collectors and sinners and even sitting down to eat with them. And the religious leaders didn't like that at all. But the fact that the tax collectors and sinners were listening to Jesus while the religious leaders were not is a bit of a cultural reversal of what we would expect. I mean, if you and I were writing this story, wouldn't we have the religious leaders listening to Jesus and the sinners not listening to him? Well, let's get back to the sheep. Let's be honest, a story about sheep and shepherds and open fields is not something that we're familiar with. But it was very familiar to the people that Jesus was talking to. The story begins with a shepherd who had a hundred sheep, and that amount of sheep would place him in what we would probably term the middle class, because the average shepherd had somewhere between 20 and 200 sheep. Now, this wasn't a hobby. This was how he made his living. A flock of sheep would provide both wool and mutton. And at the end of the day, this shepherd is doing uh, a final head count to make sure that they're all there, but he finds that one of the sheep is missing. 
My guess is that he counted them again to make sure. Now, how many of you have ever done a head count before? Maybe you're a parent with a larger family, a teacher leading a field trip, a youth leader at an event, and you do the head count, and if you come up short, you panic, and you count again, and you try to figure out which one is missing. Now, I'm sure all of this went through the shepherd's mind. We aren't told the details, but I believe the shepherd probably quickly asked a neighbor or a friend to come watch the 99 while he went out looking for the lost one. I mean, you don't want to find that lost one and come and find out that seven more have wandered away. But it's very important to find that lost sheep. Otherwise, it may become permanently lost or attacked by hungry predators or even become injured. It was a very risky and dangerous situation for a lost sheep. And we're told the search is successful. The shepherd finds the lost sheep and lifts it onto his shoulders and brings it home. Given that there was a very distinct possibility that the sheep could have been devoured, the shepherd then rejoices at finding it. So we're told about this joy in heaven. Let's compare the reaction in heaven from this story and the one just following it of the lost coin. So I'm just going to read the end verse of each story. Uh, First of all, verse 7, it says, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then in verse 10, it says, There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Why do you suppose that there is joy in heaven when a person who has been wandering in sin repents? I think the angels are so consumed with God's glory that they are filled with overflowing joy when another person begins worshiping God. We should ask God to give us that same kind of feeling when somebody comes to know the Lord. What about that line in in 15.7 that says, than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That begs the question, is there really anyone who doesn't need to repent? And the obvious answer to that question is, of course there isn't. I think this could have one of two meanings. Either it is comparing the joy expressed over a lost person coming to repentance versus those who are already repentant, The joy has already been expressed for them at some point. Or it's a comparison to those who think they don't need any, they don't have any need for repentance, like the Pharisees. Someone saying, well, I'm a good person. God will recognize that and let me into heaven based on that. Well, I believe there are two kinds of lost sheep. The first is the person who has never put their faith and trust in Jesus, and is still hoping against hope that their own goodness is enough to get them into heaven. That's risky, and it's an ultimately dangerous attitude to take regarding life after death, heaven versus hell, as your permanent residence. The second is a sheep who is already under the care of the good shepherd, someone who believes and has lived as one who comes to say, Jesus is my Savior, but has wandered away from God and is now making poor choices. If you're in that first category, you need to take a hard, honest look at what you were putting your trust in. If you think that because you are better than bad people 
or that your good actions have outweighed your bad ones and that that should be enough, or that God is a God of love and he wouldn't let anyone go to hell, if that is what you are putting your trust in, you're in for a very painful and irreversible surprise. Titus 3.5 states that the only way we can be right with God and be assured of an eternal life in heaven is to believe that God saved us, not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. And until you truly believe that, you will remain lost. Now, let's be honest. Every single person who has put their faith and trust in Jesus has also had a time when they have, when we have, deliberately or not, wandered away from our good shepherd and become lost. Does that mean that you have lost your salvation? No. Jesus stated very emphatically in John chapter 10, verses 28 through 29, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me, for my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. But if you were lost, what do you do? First, you need to admit it. I know that's hard. It's a pride thing, but admit it. Until you do, you will continue being lost simply because you are too proud to admit that you are lost. Second, turn around. The Bible calls this repentance. Don't waste another day going the wrong way, certainly not another year. Maybe God has been trying to get your attention for a long time. Third, trust God. He will love you forever, forgive you for everything. He will guide you through life because he is the Lamb of God. The Bible says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Would you close your eyes as we pray this morning? If I described you in that first category and you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, then let's pray together. Whether you're here at church or watching online, you can repeat this prayer after me. God, please save me. Save me from my sins and my sin nature. Save me from myself and from my pride. I want you to be my good shepherd. I've wandered and I'm lost. But now I want to be found by your amazing grace. Thank you for being my Savior and my shepherd. While everyone's eyes are still closed, if you find yourself in that second category today, you know that you have come to Jesus in repentance. You know that he has forgiven you. You know that you belong to him. But this morning you are far from God. You are the lost sheep who has wandered off. You think about things that you never would have imagined you would be entertaining in your mind. You say things that would have embarrassed you before. You look at things that you would not look at if you thought of Jesus being with you. You do things that you know you should not be doing. Maybe it's been weeks or months or maybe even years since you have read the Bible for yourself. 
You can't remember the last time you memorized a Bible verse or told a friend about Jesus. Maybe your prayers seem more like wishes than a conversation with the living God. Or maybe your relationship with God is just not what you want it to be. It doesn't feel fresh. If that is a situation you find yourself in this morning, then let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I come to you, admitting that even though you are my shepherd and I am one of your sheep, I admit that I have wandered far away. I know that I have not been living my life the way that I should. As a Christ follower, I am so grateful for the grace that you have given me as your child. Lord, give me the strength to overcome the ways of this world and to turn to you in all situations. I want to know you intimately and to understand your ways. I choose today to recommit to living my life as a follower of Jesus and to turn away from the ways of the world. I know this is only possible through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I give your spirit free reign in my life. I pray that you will honor this humble request that you as the good shepherd will seek me and find me and bring me back to the sheepfold. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. And God, for the people praying either one of these prayers, we rejoice along with the angels in heaven that the lost have been found. Amen.